0: What's up and welcome back to Now Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my co-host Dave Martinson. Dave, how's the week been for you, man? It's hot out here. Streets are hot. (laughs) We're here anyway. Dave, you know, uh, this past Friday, the Olympic Games kicked off with their ceremonies. I want to
1: check in. Have you been following it at all? loosely following and i actually haven't watched a watched a lick of it though which is funny because i have a tv antenna i can just watch nbc for free broadcast but i haven't watched anything yet no
0: yeah i've i've like caught some random events here and there but for some reason something about this olympics just does not have the same draw as most years to me maybe it's i'm getting older. i I think you know the covid olympics is just tough to get as into as in past years do you feel that the yeah i mean there's no crowds
1: no crowds um this is a lot less interest than normal like all live events during the pandemic so this is certainly not immune to that and I don't know hard not to feel bad for the japanese people who pretty overwhelmingly did not support the olympics taking place in tokyo in 2021 you know so it's a tough scene i guess but yeah um it's it's interesting to see some of the famous people um falter a little bit katie not winning simone biles perhaps being injured and pulling out as of today so uh, NBA, US team USA basketball losing for the first time since like oh four or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So, some uh, some adversity for Team USA. <laughs> yeah,
0: as they still yeah, the, leave the medal count. <laughs> <laughs> right, I was gonna say it's it's uh, hard to feel too bad for the United States. I do definitely feel bad for the Japanese people. Um, it seems like by all accounts it's going to be a financial hit for the country as well. Um, right absolutely so definitely tough uh let, let's just hope we get some good moments out of this olympics there's already been a few i think like there was a team relay the other day that was a really good race and, and swimming mm-hmm. and um so well let's let's hope for some more good moments but we have a packed show today so we're gonna hop into it here in a second but uh before we do if you are not following us on youtube.com slash what are you doing hit that subscribe button also go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod and find any way to consume the podcast that you would like we got some music to start with today dave and a lot of uh a lot of variety in the rappers we're going to be talking about here today we're starting with busy banks dave give me the lowdown on
1: busy banks busy banks we just mentioned him last week a uh hard to miss feature of pop smokes posthumous album faith his second album that check our review youtube.com slash nostalgia pie weren't the biggest fans of this one but i think busy banks made a uh noticeable impression with his feature given that there were a lot of features so you did need to bring it to stand out and he's the latest uh ascendant brooklyn rapper And He's, I think, pretty pretty new. There's only the one mixtape, Get Money Volume 1, that came out in September 2020. This new mixtape, Same Energy, right? Same Energy? Yes, same, same Energy, energy correct. Uh, just came out, and kind of a continuation of what he was doing last year. Someone who, I, I, I wasn't sure of this when we talked about him last week, but he was, like, uh, close with Pop Smoke. And in the wake of Pop Smoke's passing and we kind of been constantly talking about who's going to pick up the torch for Brooklyn rap, right? Not so much, not just Brooklyn drill music, which continues to uh, evolve and uh, adapt, I guess, especially in the production side, but just in general, like the star power of it all. Pop Smoke had so much charisma, so much um, star power in such a short time. Is it possible for someone to, take that mantle we even talked about this last year with little tj's mixtape right given his claims and i think the most exciting rappers have remained coming out of brooklyn and busy banks is the the latest one and i think for good reason i think he's he's quite talented on the mic
0: yeah i was really impressed with this album um you know same energy and it I do want to say the context is out of all the albums we listened to this week, this was the last one I listened to. So it was kind of a pick me up in a way, <laughs> because I think some of the albums we're going to be talking about are a little bit more like uh, toned down, sing songy, um, or just like heavier topics. And this is just like New York drill, bringing the heat, bringing the energy for almost all the way through. Um, he flows great over these, these tracks and, I found this to just be really fun. Uh, I, and again, maybe this is uh, somewhat colored by my experience with the other albums we're going to talk about, but this was a, a real pleasure. And I, I feel like this is a, a person I'm uh, excited to be tuning into this early in their career because it feels like there's potential for them to really pop off. Um, what, what did you like about the album? What stood out to you?
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. It's nothing like like super super baking. i just think he has like really good flow uh right from the start on a uh, sturdy 30 like it's just mm-hmm. really good flow he has a really good delivery great track yeah it's just the shit's hot you know um mm-hmm. and he he does try and switch it up a little bit like later on like hot sauce the delivery is not quite as high energy but i still think it works you know on a song like adore you a pnb rock no don't know if he quite has the um light crooning more melodic side down yet we also definitely don't even need to worry about that because what he does no. have down is just uh just spitting hot tracks you know and yeah i you know listening to him listening to this listening to get money volume one lyrically he does pack in some like tight word play if you're listening closely kind of speaking about like brooklyn culture contemporaneously like what's what's like to live in the outer boroughs like he's from east new york and how that's um juxtaposed to the more uh gentrified areas where all that money's going the money doesn't seem to go to where the real brooklyn people live so you can catch references to that here and there in his songs as well but even if you're not listening for that the shit's still hot
0: yeah absolutely the the two that you shouted out is thirty thirty and hot sauce really stood out to me. I think also pandemic, just very catchy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, kind of hard to really jive with anything pandemic related, but yeah. somehow I, I was with this. So I was pretty impressed with that. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think his strengths are, he flows well, he can kind of bring in some of that, uh, experience of his life as, uh, I think he's from, uh, Brooklyn, right? A Brooklyn drill rapper. Yeah, yeah. East New York Brooklyn now lives in Jersey. And uh, yeah, I I think overall, this is just an album I was not really expecting, but came away uh, pleasantly surprised with. So I highly recommend uh, everybody check out Same Energy if you're a fan of rap and and especially drill. Um, Any last thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, only 500,000 monthly listeners right now on Spotify, but he is signed to Atlantic Records, so I hope atlantic uh invests in him because with more exposure i think more people will certainly latch on absolutely why don't we move to
0: um you know someone that does something that maybe busy banks doesn't do as well pretty well which is young blue um dropping moon boy
1: uh you know i think he really popped off with that song with drake was it last year last year last fall yours mm. mine still remix featuring Drake. a classic example of the drake co-sign. somebody hot somebody new somebody nascent having drake hop on that song giving them a whole new platform giving drake a new hit in the process we've seen this time and time again uh, you know black boy jb i love McConan. the list goes on this is the latest one but i do think it's a it's it's a really effective song. I think in, in particular it's a really good R and B Drake feature. And yours mine still is on this album.
0: Um and there's a lot of signs on this album if you're yeah. gonna look at the, the features. I mean you start off the first song with John Legend, the next song with her, um Pilani is on this, mm-hmm. Jeezy gonna I mean go all the way down a boogie with a hoodie at the end. I mean, (laughs) and even the you know, the Spotify like background of of listening, one of the tracks actually just has all the featured artists listed on there, almost (laughs) like a movie poster in a sense. And uh, I think that's part of the appeal of this album is there's a lot of big names on this with someone Mm -hmm. that isn't as well-known. But did you feel like Young Blue did enough on this album to stand out on his own right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's the question. Um, yeah, I think I like him fine enough, but I probably don't like the album super high just because over the course of the 15 tracks, maybe the volume of features starts to like weigh on the album a little bit in terms of getting in the way of Young Blue, I guess. Like he's proven that he can work well with others. I also didn't, I, you know, I, I guess it's nice to, to hear him prove that because the Drake co sign, you know, always ends up becoming about Drake first. So mm-hmm. hearing him try and est- really establish himself in the industry on his own is important. And he had a lot of other tapes out before this, but really no one was super up on him until, until the Drake remix. And I also like that there's like a new voice in this kind of like radio driven R&B, you know, like it does does definitely feel like this is a, especially on a male one. Particularly. We talk about the female R&B artists all the time. And, you know, on the male side, I think it's people that are doing something different than Young Blue right now, like Giveon and Daniel Caesar, right? Like these are guys that are making softer, lighter stuff. But Young Blue definitely seems to be trying to thread the needle a little bit more. Like there's a lot more like overt hip hop influence on this. And I definitely think it's interesting. But um Moon Boy itself, I think a lot of a lot of songs still kinda of blend together for me. Yeah. I, I had a similar
0: experience and you know, going back and having to listen to a couple of the songs a second time through just to kind of distinguish them and, and be able to run myself which one was which. And I, I don't know if it was maybe my experience of listening to this but i felt like some of the production on this felt a bit clunky like it almost felt like you could kind of tell a lot of these people were not obviously in studio with him and like were kind of like sewn into the tracks um a bit and i i think that made it kind of hard to totally uh kind of just mesh with the album for me um And, you know, it's funny because I think probably one of the best songs on here is way more close with Big Sean. Um, It's at least one of the most popular ones from this album at this point. However, I thought the uh, Stuck in a Box um, and then the the play on words that, you know, kind of Big Sean has with that um, is not necessarily something I really felt was that good so yeah, it sounds it like, like
1: big sean he, he's yeah. prone to a clunker once in a while
0: <laughs> once in a while i feel like a lot of the time now yeah but, I, I guess
1: uh, you know uh, you take the good and the bad
0: <laughs> yeah so uh, i think overall i just felt um, a bit kind of like underwhelmed and, and at times a little bit like bored just because of the seaminess of this i mm. guess if i had to pick some tracks that stood out diane to the moon with john legend stood out i think mostly because i heard john legend i was like it's kind of crazy that this young r&b singer is doing a track with john legend that's a really big cosign then her back to back off the top it's like it's pretty remarkable kalani is always nice to hear and i feel like i just want to hear more from her specifically um i don't know if any of these songs really captured me all that much what about for you
1: Yeah, so listening through, I was like, when he was doing more hip-hop stuff, I was like, oh, this kind of reminds me of, like, what Gunna does. What Future does. And then Gunna pops up on this. I'm like, ah, yes, okay. And then I think, in terms of a solo track, I think Last Summer was the one that stood out to me the most from Young Blue, specifically because I was like, oh, this sounds like a really good Future song. And yeah, Mm -hmm. maybe that's not the best compliment for someone trying to make his own identity still, but I do think it was well-made.
0: Yeah. Um, I think overall, this is listenable. Just um, I think when you're getting this many artists of this caliber on your record, you want to have a bit more pop than this does. But, you know, if you enjoy R&B, I think if you enjoyed the Her album, you would definitely find this to be very much in the same vein. So um, anyways, why don't we move on from Young Blue? Cause it seems like neither one of us are really that high on this one and let's move on to uh the kid Leroy who as we sit here and talk about this and even just looking at the picture you posted there I mean he's going for the the Bieber vibes right
1: yeah yeah he's kind of got like he's been having like that early Bieber mop top action going on little remix on that haircut yeah no question now of course it's come full circle Signed with Scooter Braun for management, and he has a smash hit single featuring Justin Bieber that peaked at number three on Billboard. So, Kid Laroi, yeah, uh, it, it seems like they they know know what they want to try and do with him image wise. That that that's clear. Yeah, and I, I do have to say,
0: I think the Bieber song isn't that bad. I think it's pretty good. Um, it, this is a I don't know what do we want to call it extended EP.
1: I guess. Uh Fuck Love Three. Um, over you right. Which Yes. And that that's the funniest thing, man, is when I saw this album or uh, Deluxe Three-disc Deluxe album. mixtape come out. Yeah, not an album. I was like, Oh, he's calling it Fuck Love Three. That's weird because the debut mixtape, Fuck Love, comes out in twenty twenty. A few months later a deluxe version called Fuck Love Savage comes out. The first one is 15 songs, Savage adds 7 more. And I saw, oh, Fuck Love 3 is out. Hmm, it's kind of being generous with calling Savage Fuck Love 2. And then, upon further review, Fuck Love 3 only added 7 more songs. And is the deluxe to the deluxe edition. And it's a great example of the DLC nature of music releases when it comes to uh, programming streaming but yeah, there's only uh seven new tracks on this. He says this is the end of his F love series. So we'll lead that into the proper debut as it were, but he's made a lot of noise with this. uh, You know, in, in, in this past year, it's been about a year or so since the original iteration of this tape came out.
0: Yeah. it. I, I thought this, uh, I listened to the whole thing through. Cause I hadn't really been tuned into the kid Leroy. Um, and it's it's really interesting to kind of see what these first seven are like compared to the rest of it. Um, because if you look back, I mean, you have Marshmallow Machine Gun Kelly on a, a couple of the tracks, mm-hmm. I think, from last year. And then before that, you know, little Mosey, you have a Juice World feature, which uh,
1: is that posthumous. Uh, th- so that, that's that's kind of the whole rub with the kid Leroy we can just get into it now so he originally signed to uh, what was it called uh, grade A Little B Libby, Little Bibby's Columbia Records imprint uh, Leroy got discovered when he had a fourteen. his 14 in the Dream EP out on uh, SoundCloud when he was literally 14 that was in 2018 he's from uh, Australia and Little Bibby uh, discovered him signs him to his imprint which he had already signed Juice World to and Juice kind of and brings Leroy under his wing. Leroy opens up for Juice on the Death Race for Love Tour, at least the Australian legs. I don't know if it was every, every, every date. And they seem to uh, strike up a friendship and made some songs together, if you remember. Kid Leroy was on uh, Hate the Other Side, the Marshmallow Polo G track off the posthumous Juice record from 2020. And... They seem to have uh, some kind of relationship before Juice passed. And the thing though was those early tracks, the original iteration of "Fuck Love" in particular. This music just sounds like someone biting Juice World, which is <laughs> kind of gross to me. Cause hey, like, isn't that your friend? Or he was your friend? At least your collaborator. Like you're just gonna bite his whole sound. And the problem I had with it was it's like he's not bringing anything new to it. Like it just it just sounds like Juice Karaoke to me. Nowadays, mm. like you said, the new tracks on Fuck Love 3, not as clearly Juice-inspired, much more no. singing and blatant pop influence, right? He's kind of leaving the singing, melodic hip-hop stuff behind, at least for now. So I guess in, in a year's time, it's interesting to see that that change. But yeah, early on, it's like, this is just Juice Juice shit. And yeah. I don't know if it's that good
0: yeah i I didn't think the second half of or the disc two and three of this extended mm-hmm. mixtape uh were nearly as compelling as the first couple tracks uh, that are newly released and you know I think the song stay with Justin Bieber obviously uh a clear standout this it kind of reminds me listening to it, of like synth 80 synth punk kind of almost is some of the mm. sound like really in, in, uh, injecting a little more like bite to that sound than I, I kind of expected getting Polo G um, obviously someone that you mentioned, he's um, you know, kind of collaborated with in, in ways in the past, but getting him on not sober, I thought was a, a pretty good look for for this. Um, and then I thought the song, um, uh, don't leave me with G herbo and little dirk it had potential to be a little bit more interesting than it ended up being it starts off with these like i don't even know what that sound is it's like maybe strings being like plucked in some weird way but it starts off kind of different and then it kind of falls into a more traditional pop rap sound but overall mm-hmm. i thought it was I thought there were songs on here that had more potential to pop off. I think that's a good sign for someone who's hes only like 17 going on 18.
1: That's right. Yeah. Turns 18 in August. Yes. Stay with Bieber is kind of funny to me because that's just, once again, the blatant 80s production. Those drums are very reminiscent of what you would hear on Blinding Lights. A song notably co-produced by my guy Charlie Puth, though. (laughs) Uh, Something like that. Great TikTok follow. Yeah, he who's a talented man and i gotta say he put out that a notice he's like taking his time with the next album and then he's went on this whole story about how he never actually had time to fully craft his debut album voice notes because he was just trying to make the next hit while on the Mm -hmm. road and stuff and i was like wow you made this good music while being like on the bus and like frantically busy what's it gonna sound like when you got all this time how tantalizing I don't know if there's that much crap from Kid Leroy, at least not yet. Um, notable, too. Having just rechecked Spotify, he released a uh, deluxe to the deluxe to the deluxe, my guy. There are now six <laughs> more songs added to Fuck Love 3 plus Over You. And it's actually hilarious. To, like, try and find them. Okay, Okay, so let's see. We scroll down. Alright, so we go to Pikachu. That was the first track off Savage, so everything above Pikachu is new. Of course, if you don't know this, this is just a glorified playlist at this point. Annoying. But, yeah, Killaroy, he's already super famous and super successful, right? And I wonder what the ceiling is. Like, making a song with Bieber, Like, are you just going to like just become your own pop force? In a sense, he already is one. And he's gotten to this point off music that i found quite uninspired now he's really pivoting away from that and maybe that's good enough you know like to me it, the music generally like it, yeah the 80s stuff can be noticeable but like it's it's quite sanitized right and i think lyrically he's quite uninspiring it, it's just kind of simple shit you know so yeah can't say I'm the biggest fan, but I'm more interested in him leaving the emo rap stuff and at least just becoming a pop singer cuz I think that has more potential to to actually entertain me. Yeah. I I think the pop stuff is
0: um definitely the lane that he fits best into. Um and it's pretty obvious that some big names see something in him. Um and I think these first seven tracks like I said um show me a little bit more than what was on the second half of the album, which I found really just not very interesting. So I think he's moving in a good direction. And, you know, going back to the lyrical stuff, being 17, I think it can be hard to really, uh, unless you really have something to say, it can be really hard to write lyrics that are really inspired. So I'll give him a pass
1: on that. Yeah. Yeah. I I hear you. Uh, You know, one thing he talked about is he's an Australian guy and he doesn't sound or perform like someone from australia and he gave an explanation that it was because you know he's spending a lot of time in chicago when he moved to america and he actually kind of had to change the way he spoke so people understood him more i'm like huh that is kind of interesting perhaps that is something in terms of life experience that you could throw into the into the music in some way i don't know because hearing about how you're a toxic boyfriend for the 30th time uh, just you know doesn't do it for me (laughs) (laughs) no i I get it. I get it for sure. Um,
0: Well, I think we'll probably add one of these tracks to our Nostalgia Best of 2021. So follow that on Spotify. But Dave, let's wrap up with a rapper who stole your namesake. Dave. (laughs) Uh, uh, Another UK rapper that we're talking about here in the pod. Um, I am older, so I had first claim to this name. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I hope you're getting some of uh, some of that money uh, as a, you know, for stealing this name. But I I think this album, "We're All Alone in This Together," thought it was really it. it reminded me a lot of Burner Boy from last year, Twice as Tall, and yeah. uh, that that's a great thing to like hearken that that kind of like vibe, that energy. And just the quality of this, because I was really, really impressed with a very long album, but one that still held my attention. Mm -hmm. I think the one knock I would say is that it it can be a little downbeat. It can be Mm -hmm. not too energetic. And, you know, talking about Busy Banks, listening to Busy after this album, it was like a real shot of adrenaline. But Dave, (laughs) he gets into it and
1: lyrically, I think he's really, really strong. What did you think? Well, no question. And it's funny to hear you bring up Burna Boy because the biggest hit of Dave's debut album, Psychodrama for 2019, is Location featuring a Boy. How about that? Yeah. And yeah, Dave, we did not talk about Psychodrama. I didn't listen to it right when it came out in uh, early 2019, but that album won the Mercury Prize in England as well as the Brit Award for Album of the Year. That's the first time that's happened since the Arctic Monkeys debut album. Psychodrama uh, was just rapturously received and i think for good for you know kind of obvious reasons he's someone who is not afraid to really get down to it lyrically you know he will speak on politics and i remember in psychodrama a lot of references to david cameron former prime minister you know he he will get into the politics he had a song that has been a flashpoint called black speaking on race relations but specifically his experience personal experience as being black in britain and you know the other side of that you'd hear him talk about his family and like the immigrant experience uh from his parents coming over his brother uh serving a life sentence a lot of really impressive stuff but he also wasn't afraid to make long tracks you know generally i'm not a fan of long tracks but he just has like a, a way with words that it's like, wow, this is actually like really well-earned that this song happens to be eight minutes long, just because like his storytelling ability is just so impressive. And I think to follow that up now with this uh, second album, We're All Alone in This Together, you get that lyricism once again, but he also, I think, brings some more lighter tracks, especially in the beginning of this album, which I think was a really fun juxtaposition. So yeah I, re- I really love this and I mean people already already know this but like he Dave is definitely like a like a top tier luminary in terms of English rap and you know he's got Stormzy on this I think people would say in terms of super active UK artists right now it's really Dave and Stormzy at the top in terms of like critical acclaim.
0: Yeah and I I think it's very clear that those are the two. You know every time we've talked about Stormzy I, I think we're just kind of blown away and had the same feeling with this album when you mentioned that first half I think those first like three or four songs were all lo- all alone for danks clashed with stormzy and then in the fire are just like completely undeniable those first four really stood out to me um I thought system with uh whiz kid also was mm-hmm. a, a clear standout to me Afrobeats. um yeah and it's also always great to hear James Blake pop up in and sing a, a verse or sing the hook, and uh, I really enjoyed them kind of blending together on both sides of a smile. So th- those would probably be the ones that stood out most for me. But which which tracks
1: were your favorites? Yeah, so I agree about the early ones. Verdun's really stood out to me. Of course, that's a reference to Call of Duty Warzone. I just love the <laughs> wordplay on that. Man, try yeah. beef with my war Warzone ting. How I come third party? Like just hilarious Call of Duty line. Um, <laughs> and that song just hot as hell. And then later, uh, the next track, you get Clash with Stormzy, one of the mm-hmm. singles. And that's just, you know, again, you, we know what Dave and Stormzy can bring lyrically in terms of, like, really important subject matter. But to hear them actually just make a song that's, like, a fun rap song is also just really, really fun, you know? Mm-hmm. And still, you still got Dave saying, Tory put in labor is that Jeremy Corbyn one. You know, like, there's still <laughs> references to the politics and all, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just, like, I just like the wordplay on that. Uh, Rolly's got twenty-one, been lit since twenty-one. Lady, the shortest one on my mind. Georgia one, of course, the reference to Georgia Smith, who we do mm-hmm. agree is a beautiful woman. Uh, beautiful, yeah. Those songs are just, those songs are just hot as fuck. Yeah, man. It's uh,
0: and the thing is, though, this is a long album. I don't know if there's ever a point where I was like, okay, I gotta tune this out like the, the production on this is top notch. And he really just, like you said, can spin a story with his words and just keep your attention. And it, unlike these other albums, I, I didn't feel like this felt super same, same other than, no, um, you know, I didn't necessarily always feel like it was like a super energetic track. Um, I, th- I think there's more of a mellow vibe at times, but I was okay with that because he just kind of lures you in with his delivery and, and his wordplay, so.
1: Yeah, really impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, important to note that when you hear a lot of the piano, oftentimes that is Dave himself. He is a trained uh, piano player, and that was the case on the last album as well. Um, Yeah, you mentioned the song with Wizkid System. You also have Lazarus with uh, Boj. I'm not sure you say that, but those are both uh, Nigerian artists. You get some obviously Afrobeat influences uh, over, you know, Afrobeat songs that those are, and of course, nice connection to Dave's overall message of course his parents are nigerian immigrants so uh yeah man i mean it's i think it's one of the best rap albums of the year without 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 doubt down the sirens dave's putting out a best rap album of the year claim on this
0: uh we we might have to do a little like update in the near future of what are the the albums and the tracks that have stood out most to us so far it doesn't have to be anything formal because we always have our end of year lists but if you want to know all the tracks we've liked again nostalgia Uh, Best of 2021 on Spotify. We already have a couple of these tracks up
1: there. So check it out. Any last thoughts on Dave, Dave? Yeah, I also just want to shout out In the Fire, which has uh, some ghost uh, features on that. And it's like really a who's who of UK rap, Gets, Gigs, Fredo and Meeks, as well as Dave. Saw a big reaction to that from UK rap fans because of the surprise. Normally I'm not a fan of like hiding the features and stuff, but I think it it was actually pretty effective for people listening to this for the first time.
0: Absolutely. Um, why don't we move on to movies though, Dave, because we've been putting in that work and we want to talk about some of the movies this year that are, are coming out and that we're enjoying or not enjoying. And we want to start with pig, the Nicholas cage. Uh, I don't know. What kind of movie is this, Dave? You, you saw it. I didn't. So give me the, the breakdown.
1: Yeah, so Pig is a drama from Neon that just came out about two weeks ago. It's a bit of a thriller drama from Michael Sarnosky in his directorial debut and stars Nicholas Cage, of course. And it's about a man who lives in a woodland cabin with a truffle pig and he collects truffles, you know, the the mushrooms and sells them to the restaurant industry in portland oregon of course which he's in the the surrounding woodlands and he's kind of lives a simple meek solitary life with this pig and the inciting incident of course is that someone uh steals the pig because the pig is really good at helping him find the truffles and of course truffles are very valuable and Cage then goes back to society to find that pig and who took it and his like liaison to Portland society is played by Alex Wolf, who we'll talk about again in a little bit with M. Night's old, having a bit of a moment. Mm-hmm. And I think they have actually really great chemistry because this is a, a, a good performance from cage but it's definitely more reserved he doesn't speak as much it's a lot more physical performance and uh alex wolf brings a decidedly different energy to his performance as kind of like a really confident uh wealthy young man who's the one like selling the truffles once he buys them off of uh cage and like their dynamic is, is really good. I think what's, I don't want to spoil it because no one has really seen the movie, but what's really cool about Pig is that really subverts those expectations. You keep expecting this to go full John Wick. You keep expecting Cage to just go scorched earth to find his beloved truffle pig. And it doesn't actually go that way. It actually becomes a really uh, moving character study. Like it's a really personal at the end of the day and emotional and once you learn more about cage's character and why he went to the woods to be by himself there's a lot of i think important character growth and like i said the dynamic with alex wolf continues to get built up throughout the movie and it's and you know there's a really awesome dressing down of like high uh cuisine restaurant society as well in the film like uh, completely recommend it. I think it's really riveting and propulsive, without actually descending into that like revenge thriller that I think people might expect it to become if they watch the trailer.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say the the way the trailer has looked, and I think also just kind of like the John Wick kind of parallels, where like yeah. a beloved pet gets taken or stolen mm-hmm. or killed in some way, and you're like, oh, now this this, this man's gonna have to you know go on a war path to get his animal back mm-hmm. um but to hear you kind of describe it it sounds a lot more interesting and a lot more thoughtful and uh i'm i'm totally down to uh check this out at some point in the near future also i'm, I'm glad to see nicholas cage getting just more and more like legit roles again um you know I, it's, it's funny i recently watched moonstruck which is one of his first films mm-hmm. obviously uh won a lot of awards back in the day but he just stands out in that film as like you can see why he got bagged on so much some of his mannerisms some of his overacting in the film really i just feel like he's in a totally different movie at times um but it feels like he has just kind of like grown into this like older actor sphere really gracefully and uh it's nice to see him just working
1: consistently again yeah, and that's the thing. He actually has been working consistently throughout the 2010s, But if you look at that, you probably don't know most of the movies, and a lot of you'll assume it's just kind of financially minded. and He's just trying to get paid because he was quite uh, lavish in his spending back at the his heyday as a A list actor. But like, I feel like you know, there's there's always been stuff that pops up, right? Like he had a lot of like notable like horror and like alternative horror roles lately, like uh, Mandy and color out of space and there was this this movie at sundance 2021 called prisoners of the ghostland which doesn't have released it yet which actually might be a little more john Wick. apparently it's really crazy like action film from what i understand but i think pig is gonna yeah give him some more chances again because he, he had been working and like i think being been been effective at that kind of stuff but to see this it's like now nah, like their cage could totally bring it again it seems to you know as an older actor so that'd be really fun it's actually been cool, cool to listen to alex wolf as he did press for old talk about his relationship and genuine friendship that he's made with cage after working That's with re- him too yeah
0: he seems like a uh, up-and-coming actor who's very thoughtful as well um mm-hmm. alex wolf and i have to say i mean we'll, i'll talk about him in a second with old but um feels like he's he's on a, a good trajectory for his own career as well so Definitely, yeah. uh, definitely interested to check out Pig. Definitely interested to see more from both of these talented actors. And let's let's continue to talk about Alex Wolf because Dave, I ended up seeing Old this weekend, and I got to say, M Night Shyamalan, he can do a twist almost always. Almost, I don't know if you knew this, but there's there's twists in these movies. Um, I found Old to be. Very M. Night Shyamalan, right? Which is like, you go in and you know that there's going to be some parts of the film that you're just like, this is creepy. This is cool. This totally works for me. And then some other moments that you're just like, hey, it's a little too much, a little over the top. Um, but it's always interesting, I think, is is where I fall with it. And I found this to be a pretty interesting film for a couple of reasons one i think uh i think the concept you can get from the trailer is that this group of people are on a resort uh, vacation go to this this beach that they can't get off of and they're aging very quickly on the beach um and that's you know obviously made very apparent by the the children that come along with them who go from being 6 and i think 8 years old to like 11 and 17 within the first like 20 minutes that they're on the beach, something like that, um, and to see the dynamics play out as, because there's just so much that goes on with this movie, right? You have them not only figuring out why are we aging so quickly, um, the the group dynamics of, um, there's a rapper there, which first of all, M Night <laughs> named this rapper midsize sedan played by Aaron Pierre, um, which I was like, you that's couldn't funny. think of a better rapper name than that, but it's almost like, so I don't know. I, I do think that's his attempt at being funny, um, but uh, he's on the beach already when they get there. And then this woman that he had been on the beach with washes up to shore and that kind of kicks a uh, dead, obviously. And that kind of kicks the whole group into like suspicion and like the, there's a lot of like racial dynamics underlying a lot of the interactions that happen specifically with rufus sewell's character charles um who's a, a doctor that's on the beach with his family um he kind of becomes like the antagonist on this beach along with obviously just the the mystery of the aging um and so there's that going on there's family and relationship dynamics between um gail garcia bernal um
1: and, uh, Vicky Kripes. Who yeah. play like Phantom the thread. mom and dad? What was that? I said Phantom Thread fame?
0: I know. Uh, it, it was nice to see her again because you know, obviously uh, we don't see her in a lot of movies that yeah. are this big all the time. Um, and Gail Garcia Bernal, we had just seen um, last year. In, um what was that? What was? What was the name? we well, pull it up right now. Yeah, it was uh, Wasp. No last minute yes uh, netflix the um, movie. and they they have a I, I don't know if i totally buy their relationship at the beginning but they're going through relationship issues and on this resort vacation to like have a last memory with their children um and then as the children age and things happen on the beach they kind of start also addressing their relationship issues as they're kind of like growing old together all within the span of this day so there's those dynamics going on. There's a a, a very strange part where uh, someone on the island becomes pregnant and within mm. like, I don't know, 15 minutes has a child and the child does not make it. And that, uh, that part's very, um, mm. very strange to me. <laughs> um, but, you know, overall, I think there's more good than bad here. Um, I don't know if this is a top tier M Night Shyamalan movie, but mm. there's enough here to kind of keep your interest. And I do think the twist—I don't want to spoil it, spoil it for anybody—but I do think the twist makes makes you really think about like ethical standards of hmm. of some of the things that go on on the island, and it, it leaves things in more of a gray area than you would um, expect it to. Especially watching the rest of the movie. Um, just shouting out real quick. Um, Thomasin Mackenzie um mm. who plays like the the daughter aged into teenagehood um and then also uh, like you mentioned before Alex Wolf plays the son aged into teenage into adulthood and uh, I think they're both pretty good. So I think the performances aren't bad. You also get uh Ken Leung who we just have been mm. uh talking about in an industry and <laughs> he has a really funny running bit between him and uh, Rufus Sewell, or Rufus Sewell's character Charles can never get his name right. His name is Jaron, and he just keeps screaming at him, "My name is Jaron!" and just like freaking out <laughs> at him. It's just really funny. Um, it really reminds me of his character and industry because the rest of the time he's like the complete opposite of it. But That's there, there's some interesting stuff going on, so I, I recommend yeah. watching it. But not, would not you, top-tier Shyamalan.
1: Yeah, would you consider old a horror film? Is it more of a suspense thriller? Because it's notable that it's mainly set in the day, daylight, right? And something like Midsummer still very much a horror film, even though it's during the mm-hmm. day. But old, you know, the trailer definitely suggests that there's suspenseful moments. But, like, is it a full-on horror movie? How would you characterize it?
0: I think I would put it more in the suspense thriller mm. category. I just didn't feel like there were enough, like, big
1: scares here. Yeah, that's good. Um cuz I still want to see uh, it and that, that that makes me more eager to see yeah. it. <laughs>
0: there's only al- yeah, there's only one real I feel like really really scary moment which is uh Abby Lee Kershaw plays this um model wife of uh Rufus C. Wells character and um there's a part near the end right before she dies. Um I guess that's a bit of a spoiler, but pretty much everybody on the island dies eventually just cuz of the aging mostly. Where her the way her character dies just leaves her very like, uh, mis like deformed in a in a way, yeah, but I've not the way that, you'd expect. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's like the only real like kind of like horror movie moment for me. But otherwise, a lot of it's just suspenseful and creepy. But um, I, I'm looking forward to hearing what you think when you do see it. we'll maybe we'll circle back to it real quick yeah. on the pod.
1: Yeah, you know, like that the Shyamalan twist always polarizes, but I think it's always important to note that. M. Knight's someone who has his own creative vision and identity. Like he's a very singular filmmaker and we should always commend that. And old, like his last movie, Glass, he self financed this. Only cost like eighteen million before marketing, but that was all him. And this movie made sixteen and a half million at the box office, notably beating the underperforming Snake Eyes. So it's nearly equaled its budget. And that was you know, largely put together by M night. So I think, you know, we even when the movies maybe only so, so it's, he's always, I think worth not only checking out, but also worth commending because he operates in a, a unique way in the industry. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. He actually is like a pretty, I don't <laughs> wouldn't say central
0: character, but like, a, a he gets a lot of screen time himself in the movie playing a, person who's like on the resort and like takes these people to this island and is like um kind of on the tertiaries of the movie so you you see a lot of him in the movie i think there's a lot of meta-ness almost to like the role that he plays (laughs) so it's it's pretty interesting but yeah i give i give him a lot of credit you know he's he at least similar to like christopher nolan i think he at least comes up with really creative ideas and Mm -hmm. original ideas um and so obviously getting any kind of original idea in hollywood these days is worth giving notice to so um dave you mentioned though the Mm underperforming snake eyes
1: let's talk about it you went to go see it right i did yes i saw this in dolby cinema shout out the real color black baby contrast
0: I saw old and real uh, the Dolby Cinema, and I was like, "Oh, I love this contrast, man! It's so much, it's so much more realistic. It's so great."
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, so I saw Snake Eyes last week, and it uh, this is obviously the uh, it's Snake Eyes GI Joe Origins. This is the uh, reboot of the GI Joe film franchise. Of course, there were two GI Joe movies around 2010: The Rock in the second one, Channing Tatum in the first paramount movies conjunction with hasbro of course spun off from the famous long-running toy but of course there are also gi joe comics animated shows and gi joe it's a franchise and those movies in 2010 they were uh financially profitable but not exactly like big hits you know i think they made like the three to four hundred million dollar range and this snake eyes movie notably is a lot cheaper than those movies it's like 85 million which not cheap but a lot cheaper than those movies which were like like 150 million plus budgets and despite that snake eyes definitely underwhelmed the box office today or this past weekend making like less than 15 million and might not bode super well for the future of this but i actually would like to see paramount give it another go because despite some their noticeable flaws with snake eyes But there's a lot of like really likable qualities to it somehow. Hmm. Like I'm surprised how much I actually liked it. Like I thought it's a lot of fun. And when it's not trying to be like a stealth, not even stealth, not even trying to be like a second tier G.I. Joe uh, franchise introduction and it's just being more of like a ninja character movie, it's really good. And when the G.I. Joe stuff kind of comes in towards the end, it's like, ah, this isn't quite as fun as before, you know, like you can see on the screen, uh, you have uh, Samara weaving is in the movie as Scarlet, one of the famous GI Joe characters, but she's very much just like an ancillary character there to establish the GI Joe's exist. And at the end, the GI Joe's will want snake eyes to join them in case you thought that wasn't going to happen or something. But like for the sake of the movie, it's like, you know, we just didn't really need that. That could have been like a post credit scene, I guess, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and I think the reason it works as a character study is really our two leads. You have Henry Golding, of course, as Snake Eyes. Notably, this is how he becomes Snake Eyes, and he does uh, speak and do everything. Snake Eyes, the character famous for being mute, but we're not to the mute part yet, which is good for the movie, of course. And I think Henry Golding is like really, really effective at it. Like he just, you know, he has a charisma, he has a as a star quality that we've known since Crazy Rich Asians. But I liked him here. And then as Foil, the character that'll become Storm Shadow, again, in case you didn't see that coming, is uh, played by Andrew Koji. And Andrew Koji is famous for being the lead of Cinemax's show Warrior, which is a Bruce Lee inspired martial arts show that will now be shifting to HBO Max for its next season. And Golding and Koji are really awesome and like their character dynamic as Koji uh, takes Snake Eyes to Japan into his clan and teaches him like their ways and like builds up his like you know ninja abilities and stuff it's really good stuff and i, I really liked it. i think the problem the key problem with this movie is the action isn't that good and what? it's like kind of Apple. baffling that it's not that good right Uh out of all just, things the action yeah. not being good yeah so this is directed by robert uh Shwenky. Sch- yeah who does not have an impressive uh, Hollywood CV. Yeah, it's like divergent, bunch of other stuff, nothing anyone really likes. And he just clearly was out of his depth when it came to filming this action. So much cutting. It's so much shaky cam, and not even good shaky cam. And it's just just disappointing because I think the costume design, I think the set design for the uh, Arashikage clan compound where they're doing a lot of the ninja training and stuff, gorgeous they actually shot a lot of this in japan i think that goes a long way it looks awesome but the action like whenever they actually do any like big fighting it's like just bland you know and Hmm. in the age of chad Stahelski and david leach i was gonna say you need to have punched up punched up action or at least it doesn't need to be like amazing per se but it needs to be more coherent than this anyway and now just a big disappointment like there's even meta disappointment right because you have andrew koji of course the star of warrior but also as a hard master one of the one of the uh, joe characters uh is played by uh iwo uais who is rama from the raid movies aka one of the most prolific stuntmen actors there is right now remember how much we enjoyed uh joe Taslim's abilities as sub-zero in mortal combat mm-hmm. again another raid alum because it's just it elevates the film but when you get the hard master scenes it's like cut 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 and it's like eco he's he's so fucking good at like commanding that kind of like real life stunt work and the movie just doesn't let him do it it was really lame and like i said once the more overt like gi joe universe stuff pops in towards the end of the second act and snake eyes gets a little muddled gets a little like predictable franchise stuff but i think there was enough bones to this movie again you know normal franchise caveats you like per the standard like i thought there was enough like actual like effective and good dramatic stuff that investing in the sequel had has potential but might not, might not be looking so good after this poor box office.
0: Uh, you know, that's, that is really baffling. You know, there's so many just like mid-tier action movies that are made to not even get, you know, someone that can coordinate like just like adequate action is very strange. Um, yeah. You know, I wanted to circle back real quick to Golding, right? So just looking through his filmography here, Crazy Rich Asians was like his first like role (laughs) most uh and then he you know he's in the simple favor playing like the Mm. you know like the the boyfriend he saw him in last christmas the next year Mm -hmm. and the gentleman um Mm -hmm. this is his first time really like leading
1: a movie
0: do you feel like he's kind of got the chops to maybe continue to move into those the, the like leading man role
1: i do yeah i do because the snake eyes character this film is largely driven by like personal vengeance and it's kind of like a singular motivation, but Golding still I think has like a, a screen quality to him. And I also could like, I think some reviewers know this. It's like Golding, not the worst pick for James Bond either. Like he has some mm. debonair qualities as well. So That'd
0: yeah, really I like good him. look for him. You know, I'm looking his calendar isn't filled up too much. He has a, uh, a voice, role in 2023 and he's in uh, persuasion uh, alongside Dakota Johnson next year, the Jane Austen, uh, right. adaptation, um, playing Mr. Elliot. So he, he's only got two movies on the docket here. It's looking like I, I, I'd almost like to see him do like an HBO miniseries where he's like the lead yeah. in some way. I feel like getting some like short TV screen time could be really good for him, but I, I like him a lot. He's incredibly charming. I think that that James Bond pick is very interesting Real quick, just sticking with James Bond, I saw this weekend saw a tweet where someone's like, you know, why don't we ever consider Dev Patel to play James Bond?
1: I just wanted to hear your, your quick reaction to that. Yeah, obviously that's coming up with The Green Knight, uh, his next film coming out from A24 this Friday. I mean, Dev, Dev's a bit of a skinnier guy. Does he have the physicality down? Because I love Dev Patel as an actor. He's awesome you know that's kind of like thought the, too yeah it's kind of like the, the riz ahmed thoughts we've had in the past it's like does riz have the physicality down and you know actually i was thinking about that since we talked about that riz ahmed got fucking pretty swollen the night of when he was getting jacked in prison so maybe riz could do it and maybe Dev could do it too yeah, yeah. um there, there's a lot of talented male actors in england right now there's there's there a lot are. of good options um so i, I i'm hoping you know after
0: we get the next bond that we can kind of get these rumors ramping up a little bit more but if it's between yeah. you know golding idris elba dev patel and um Riz Ahmed, no, my pick though
1: I, I my pick is daniel
0: Kaluuya. i mean he's if he would do it yeah, yeah. You, you get daniel, and he's, he's got the physicality he's a big guy you know yeah so um it would be really interesting almost i don't, I don't know if this would ever actually work but to do like a, an interesting James Bond where they were doing like flashbacks and it's like old James Bond is Idris Elba and young James Bond is Daniel Kaluuya or something like that. I feel like that could be a interesting thing. Get both of them in there. But why don't we move on quick to uh, a documentary, we don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but we're, we're big ringer fans here. Bill Simmons disciples in some sense. And uh, we wanted to just talk real quick about Woodstock 99. Uh, it's a music box documentary is what they're calling it. I think that's the, the season of
1: mm, yeah. film series and documentaries.
0: Yeah, thank you. And, um, you know, what What I found interesting and why I really wanted to kind of tune into this is Woodstock 99 for me growing up. And especially as I started to like, go to music festivals and kind of think about what I wanted to get out of those experiences going kind of felt almost like this. Like music festival that defined the direction that music festivals were going in, and that they kind of took a right turn from, um, you know, because the stories you heard about it was like legendary lineup: Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you know, when they're at their most famous, Rage Against the Machine, after uh, just after I think Battle of L.A. Um, had had dropped, um, you know, this time in music where bands like Corn. Limp Biscuit were huge and, you know, mosh pits, rioting, things laying on fire, just like total wildness at these festivals. And by the time festivals had become modified and we were, uh, we started going to them, uh, music festivals just were not this type of experience. And and it, that that's a good thing because this experience seems like hell. And I felt like the documentary Woodstock 99 really captured a lot of the essence of what made this situation kind of a powder keg. But I'm not sure if it fully colored in all the the parts of the picture for me. Um, how did you feel what Suck 99 did as a documentary explaining what went on that weekend?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it does a good job. I mean, I'm sure you could add a, another hour to the movie and even mm-hmm. go further in depth of what happened. But like for the sake of <clears throat> making a documentary film, I understand why it was as long as it was. Um yeah, I mean, I, I liked all the Talking Head stuff. I thought they were all well-picked. You know, they had Stephen Hyden in, in this, the music writer who hosted the Ringers uh, Break Stuff Luminary podcast series about Woodstock 99. So this is almost like the sequel to that from the Ringer side of things. And yeah, I, I would like more, there are certain narratives that I think you could have poked more into, but I still liked it. There's a lot of like good footage of this. I think the one key thing I've seen brought up is that there's, kind of a gratuitous amount of showing the naked women in mm-hmm. this it's like i thought that a point was pretty effective we probably don't need to show Go all these because it, it kind of just again. brings questions of like do these people know they're being shown in that like i'm like it's kind of weird right like yeah. so that was something that i started to notice it's like all right like towards the end i, I don't need to see the 30th girl being groped you know mm-hmm. with her with no shirt on you know but i think I still think overall it kind of like the message is good like it, it talks about the right things but we could have went harder on the promoters i think that's clear they still dig their own graves when they talk to the camera but we still could mm-hmm. i think maybe had other talking heads more be more combative about that sort of thing
0: yeah you know i, I think that that promoter, what was his name? Like Peter Scher or something like yeah, that. Sure. Lo- yeah. He got a lot of screen time comes across as a villain <laughs> in a lot of this because he's blaming the women, uh, for the sexual assaults that, that they experienced because of, you know, choosing to show their breasts or what they chose to award. J- John share, John Scher. Um, he came across just very slimy me in this and i feel like they kind of kept going back to him so almost similarly to the gratuitous nature of how often they showed uh what women flashing the crowd or being topless kind of giving him more and more screen time i understand they're trying to build up the other perspective but felt just almost like we get it and we we know what this guy's take is i would have liked to hear a little bit more from the women but i also you know, you mentioned that like extra hour of the documentary, there was a question posed at the beginning of the documentary, which is like, I forgot who it was, might've been like Moby or something like that. But they said like, there was a lot of anger at this festival, but mm. we they never really answered the question of why all these white males were so angry going into this festival. Right. And um, I I didn't feel like we really got a lot of, that answer i think that another half hour to hour exploring the social and political atmosphere that probably played a part into this would have helped build out that picture a little bit more especially because they they juxtapose it with woodstock 94 uh which five years earlier seemed like it was very much in the same vein of woodstock the original woodstock which was like very like lovey peaceful mm-hmm. people kind of just like enjoying being there whereas this was it's like <laughs> it became a riot basically so right. um i, w- I would have been more interested to hear more about that but overall i found this to be a really interesting look at this experience
1: yeah yeah because it kind of like moves through it quick right you get the stuff about carson Daly and and, and trl and a uh, uh, backlash to the mainstream and you know invasion of the, the the pop teeny bopper boy bands and stuff from like the disney realm right britney backstreet NSYNC, et etc and later on you get the reference of like someone says it's like all these these white kids most of these are middle-aged white kids anyway and they have this angst and it's like they're they so angry about their still pretty good lives and it's like yeah there were there was more to, to to speak on there you know it's like again, yeah like, no one went to Woodstock without at least some means, right? Yes, people oh. snuck in; they busted down the fence and snuck in, but you still had to get there, right? So, like, it's totally. not like like people super down on their luck. We're at Woodstock '99; these were people with with means, and that, I guess, even more so, seeing what manifests, right, with the rioting and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, I wanted I wanted more dressing down on the promoters. Like, like um, yeah. Yeah, what's Fuck his name? Um, uh Lang, um mm. who who was there from the start. Michael Lang, the promoter yep. behind all, all the Woodstocks. Just, yeah. They're like, yeah, Michael Lang, kinda kind of a doofus. And it's like, yeah, can we get more of that? Like, yeah. do you see how like incompetent this was set up? Like we've both been to festivals. It's like just seeing how 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 shitty it was done. No pun intended. It was ridiculous.
0: You can go back and check out our discussions of the potential Woodstock 50 celebrations years ago, where we were like, you know, that chance it actually comes together, but it's really intriguing to see all these big names potentially playing together. Um, And Michael Lang, uh, they kind of showed at the end of this Mm. documentary, just pretty much seems like he has no real capability of putting together a legitimate festival at this point. like the logistic logistical side of things just does not seem to be strong so he seems to be more of a conceptionary conceptual Mm. person um but yeah i think they could have gone way more into him i do feel like the way that they made coachella look at the end it almost kind of felt like an ad for coachella like look how shitty this experience was and look at the experience you can have at coachella every year which is is fair to like put them side by side but you could have been like this happens at Lollapalooza and Bonnaroo as well but like to choose Coachella specifically felt a little
1: yeah I think that would have been nice if they're like there there's several really large grand scale festivals in the U.S. right now and Coachella is the biggest and the longest running of them but like Mm -hmm. to only to single out Coachella I was like huh this is like kind of like out of place in a certain sense like I liked yeah I liked how they were put against each other but yeah I mean. that's another. That's another. I think another angle to this, right? It's like we could have seen the history of music festivals post Woodstock '99. There's a lot of me in that bone too. Totally, and I think um,
0: you know, just to kind of cap finish that point, Governor's Ball would have been a great one to I think highlight because it's probably one of the biggest ones that still is independent from any big industry influence at this point. Totally run by right. just that that group. Um, I forgot. What
1: the Golden Voice is. is it?
0: Yeah. I don't think Golden Voice. I think it's just like a, the group that originally started it runs it themselves, but um, anyways, I think that's enough for Woodstock 99. Check it out on HBO Max. Um, let's finish up moving in a more positive direction, Dave, with Ted Lasso. Season 2 premiering this past week on Apple Plus, or Apple TV Plus, I should say.
1: You You caught up right to watch this i did just for this season two hadn't seen it yet until now what, what was your experience of season one yeah i like the show you know i think the it's kind of clear watching the show i because i knew what everyone thought about the show already going in and it's kind of clear it's like oh yeah ted lasso the man he's not an antihero, and that's different for tv He's not Michael Scott or David Brent either for comedy's sake. It's like, hmm, I get it. Thing is, like, I found the show super funny in the first season. I think there's funny and amusing premises, and it seems like those are getting paid off and, and built up upon more in the second season. So I have no doubt the show will get more funny. But early on, it's like more about like, I guess investing in like the light dramatic themes of of that first season, so I liked it, but I I don't I don't have like amazing love for it the way some people do. Yeah,
0: I, I found this to be just a super <laughs> delightful show, um, and I was so excited for season two. The first season I watched, I binged it all within like two days back in. oh boy, maybe back in April or so. And mm. I think the thing that really stood out to me is we really live in an age of television where we're told to like root for, or at least follow anti-heroes week to week. And you think about probably one of the most standout shows from this year, mayor of East town, and you're following a very flawed character, not necessarily an antihero, but like, I think that's about as good as you get on television. Now is you get someone who's like very flawed and it kind of lives in this gray area of, this someone i actually want to root for or like or is this someone that you know I, I come to like because i'm just with them every week for this hour head lasso it gives you uh, a lead in jason sudeikis that just is like a complete like hero in terms of someone that makes you feel good to follow feel good to invest in um and i think it makes it kind of helps people to feel like they're seeing something that they strive to be in their life because i think most people do feel like they try to make good decisions try to be there for the people try to be a good person and ted lasso really embodies that and to see like the impact he makes on people around him is really nice obviously the first season thrives off the premise of him never having coached a soccer team before and kind of his uh his ability to bring something different to coaching rather than just like the strategical side of it. Um, the second season, obviously he's still, you know, kind of trying to learn more about how to become a soccer coach, but it seems like the second season is going to, um, like you said, build more off of that first season in terms of the relationships going on around the soccer team, Um, And kind of getting more into some of the other characters a little bit more and I I found one of the characters to be uh, that I found most intriguing was Brett Goldstein's Roy Kent, Um, his arc in season one and how it's kind of leading into season two. Mm. uh, really nice he's like this grumpy old like legend soccer player on the team when ted takes over and his arc by the end of the season kind of like him accepting his role accepting this like next stage of his life finding joy in other parts (laughs) yeah was it was really really great and to see where he's going in season two just also very intriguing um
1: how did how did you feel about roy kent as a yeah i liked him i liked him um uh especially his, his dynamic with uh, what's his name? Uh, Tart, the, uh, the young handsome uh, oh yeah, really good um, striker who uh, goes back to Man City midway through mm-hmm. season one. Fun villain for the show. Yeah uh, Jeffrey Tart is it? I think uh, so. Yeah. Um, I, I like their dynamic. I, I like how Juno Temple's character shifts between the two characters as well. Mm-hmm. um i think she's definitely has a br- brings a fun energy and <clears throat> she's actually like i think has some of the best comedy chops on the show in the early goings the comedy's still on the lighter side um so i like that um yeah but yeah kent i, I like kent's energy too it's like this really like the gruffness and the uh um, mm-hmm. matter of factness is a great foil to the overwhelming positivity that is Ted yeah
0: yeah absolutely and um I I think the other like aspect of this that I've really enjoyed is just seeing the way that the characters grow around Ted's goodness within the season right so obviously the the conflict is um Hannah Waddingham who plays Mm -hmm. Rebecca Welton her character uh wants the team to tank in the first season so that she basically ruins the investment of her ex-husband. Um, then to see kind of the way she turns around uh, in, in all of it. And then, you know, everybody else within the organization starts to kind of turn around is just really, <laughs> really rewarding and, and uplifting in a lot of ways. And then they're starting off season two, obviously all on the same page. And I'm sure there will be some fluctuation at points um, in terms of where everybody wants things to go. But uh Finding out that she was the the shame lady on Mm. Game of Thrones.
1: Septimunella, yes.
0: Yeah, what was uh, really just a a funny, like, holy shit, that actor plays both those people type moment. But also, uh, I just think she plays that, like, sternness so well, and then the moments when she broke, like, when they were on that trip, and uh, she had that, I think she had, like, a guy, like, stand her up on a date or something like that, I can't remember, but had, like, kind of consoles or is there for her in that moment and seeing the way that she breaks. She she plays that role so well. Um and then her like team around her, like um who is it? Uh Higgins, uh Jeremy Swift's Higgins. I just find him so funny to (laughs) be like her like right hand man who's kind of like a baffling buffoon in a way, but also just like super well intentioned. Um yeah, it's just a really feel good show. And season two seems to be right on the same course. Any thoughts on the premiere from season two?
1: Uh, Yeah, no, no I don't think so. It's like, it's like yeah, this is picking up where we left off. I don't, you know, like plot wise, it seems pretty straightforward to me. I think just the thing to look out for is what happens with a lot of, uh, you know, comedy shows is that as the ensemble gets stronger and the writer's room knows more what's going on, you expect the show to get better. This is... Time and time again, happen with many great comedies, Parks and Rec, The Office, etc. The shows grow uh, into their own as yeah. we have more time. Notable, of course, Ted Lasso already renewed for season three as well, and definitely the biggest hit on Apple TV Plus to date. Um, they gave us a lot of meaningless numbers, but apparently this was their most. The season two premiere was their most watched new thing to mm. this point. So. think it's evident that Ted Lasso is definitely popular for them but it's probably not like the biggest hit Uh, we're not like Netflix scale but uh it's nice to see Apple finding their footing you know I think between this and and also Mythic Quest they're definitely making some inroads on the comedy sphere absolutely just
0: a uh, quick note there's been you know they've been picked up for season three like you mentioned but there's been talk that season three might be the last season Mm. um given Sudeikis's uh commitments beyond um season three at this point and uh it would i think that might actually work really well for the show if they know that there's a certain number of seasons so they can tell whatever story they obviously want to tell instead of having to keep things ongoing for whatever period of time so we'll see about that we'll check in with ted lasso as season two wraps up after its 12th episode but dave what should people be tuning into
1: for next week yeah, we'll probably also be talking about Ted Lasso in September when the show wins a bunch of Emmys because it's nominated yeah. for a ton of them. Uh, yeah, next week, there's, I think, a few really important stuff coming out. Movie wise, you have The Green Knight, rapturously Ooh. received, a 24 film starring Dev Patel. I cannot wait for that. We also have Stillwater, the Todd McCarthy uh, drama starring Matt Damon. We have. The Billy Eilish second album. We have Isaiah Rashad's comeback album. We have a Skepta EP. We even have Jungle Cruise starring The Rock and Emily Blunt. Plenty of stuff. Big Pod. Big
0: Pod. We'll be talking about as much of it as we can get to. So hit that subscribe on YouTube.com slash Nostalgia Pod. SoundCloud.com slash pod And once again, find all of our music, Nostalgia Best of 2021 on Spotify. Catch you next week.